right, so we already um, read the passage uh, for preaching from Mark chapter 11. We read the whole chapter, <clears throat> but the lesson will be coming from the first 26 verses, not that last little section there today. So finally, the story um, that Mark is recording, his gospel account, reaches somewhat of a um, climax for us. And um, am I supposed to start this? We're good? Okay, sorry. So it somewhat reaches a climax in that Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. There's uh, a lot going on here. This strange story of a cult being taken from someone and Jesus then riding on it, then the people shouting, and then almost sort of a very anticlimactic going into the temple and just looking around and then leaving and going back to Bethany, right? A lot of people say that was kind of building and then it just kind of went, you know, and he, he left and went back um, home, so to speak. And then this very odd, act, uh, very odd incident of a fig tree that's empty of fruit, and so Jesus curses it, and a few days later, it withers up and dies. Then Jesus does, uh, in between those two, the cursing and the withering, he does return to the temple and overturns tables, and John says he even made a whip of cords and ran the people out of the temple and began to teach there about the temple. John, in fact, says... Jesus teaches them, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Speaking, of course, of his own body, the true temple. But prophesying at the same time that this man-made temple in Jerusalem would also be destroyed, and it would be very soon, totally wrecked, never to be built again. Then this other odd teaching about mountains being thrown into the sea and prayer and forgiveness at the end of that. But in the midst of all this, verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, simply have faith in God. And if I can sort of sum up all of this passage today and perhaps title this message, that would be it. Simply have faith in God. And so the scriptures in fact, the, the scriptures, the living word, God, Jesus himself, which is the word of God made flesh, and who lives today still at the right hand of God interceding for us, says to us, right where we are today, have faith in God. So what do we make of all this in light of this statement? Well, first, I think it's important that we do take all this together. Now, obviously... Um, I could have broken these down in the sections and preached a sermon on the triumphal entry, the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, and all these would have been sufficient, and many times we do that, but I think it's important to try to form our teaching thoughts from the whole of it, because I think it all goes together. I think it all we see the purpose of it as we put it all together. I hope I'll help you do that this morning. This triumphal entry, as it's called, into Jerusalem. The much-anticipated arrival, right? Mark, uh, if you remember, Mark chapter 1, unlike the other Gospels, don't start with Jesus being born. It's just, boom, right into it. The baptism in his ministry. And he's building us up to this point, right? 
to get to Jerusalem, to get Jesus to Jerusalem. In fact, three or four times at this point in Mark, Jesus has already said, literally, I must go to Jerusalem, be arrested, and even be killed. And so here we are in Jerusalem, and this entire incident about the colt and Jesus riding on it, of course, is not that odd when you see it in light of fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, in Matthew's account, he says to us, this took place, this whole incident with this colt and this donkey, this young unridden donkey, it all took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden, Zechariah 9 and 9. All this is to fulfill prophecy, right? Now, it was common for the people to be jubilant during this time because it was Passover and everybody was coming to Jerusalem and it was common for them to sing psalms, especially these psalms known as the Hillel Psalms, these psalms of uh, anticipation of the Messiah coming and the king riding in to Jerusalem. And obviously at this point, God had put it into their hearts to sing these psalms and to acknowledge Jesus at this time riding into town as he was. Now, did they truly understand all that was uh, going on? Who knows? We're not told that they do. We see the disciples at this point. Their faith has been up and down. At times they get it, at times they don't. I would say for the most part here, people are doing what they're used to doing, maybe thinking Jesus was just being symbolic of what they were singing about. Maybe some of them did recognize the truth of who he was and what was going on and the fulfillment of prophecy. But the cool thing is that um, our God is able to pull all scripture together and all prophecy together at the appointed time and bring all the necessary items, objects, animals, and people together when it's needed to fulfill his purposes. And that's what he's doing here. So all this Old Testament is coming to light. And for us, we have the great benefit of looking back and seeing all this in its purpose, right? Now, many in that day should have been able to see what was happening and recognize the prophecy. And maybe, again, some did. But we certainly have to. Now, a lot of people have said, well, Jesus must have uh, went on before them earlier to let these people know that, hey, some of my people are going to be coming asking for this small donkey, so make sure you turn it loose to them, all this. There's a lot of commentary writings that suggest all this. But I would say, well, Jesus did go on before them, way before them, like before time was created and ordained all this to happen. That's why it happened, okay? So when these people speak, these guys come out, hey, what are you doing with our donkey? Where are you going with that? Well, the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay. And we don't know really this word Lord can mean a lot of things, but I think obviously in this context it means the sovereign one, that Lord, not just a master. But, you know, it's, it's amazing that these people just say, oh, okay, well then take it. So this certainly was ordained before time because I believe that these people in this very donkey in all things are born for the time in which they're used by God. And these people were here for this very purpose. This cult was born for this very purpose. And so perhaps for us today as we reflect, certainly for those in this day, maybe more so than those in this day that it was written, all these things we can see divinely orchestrated. His ascent to Jerusalem, the colt, the palm branches, the shouting, a divinely orchestrated scene of prophecy fulfillment and prophecy being foretold. And I think that's where we 
start seeing the point of this whole text together. There's this prophecy being fulfilled as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. But there's also a prophecy being foretold still about things that are going to happen. So he arrives and goes into the temple and he looks around and then he leaves, right? And see, I don't think of this as anticlimactic. I think of it in different terms. I think perhaps, and I haven't read this anywhere, so I could definitely be wrong. But I think perhaps this is one of those times that Jesus was being tempted, yet overcoming. You know, he is tempted in all points as we were, yet without sin. I think this is Jesus coming in tired from his journey and saw all that was taking place in this temple, his father's house of prayer. And I believe divine righteous anger might have taken over this tired man and he went home and rested instead of doing what he wanted to do. And so what we actually see the next day when he comes back, rather than what many describe as this horrible um, incident, what we might see rather instead of violence was restrained power under control meekness after he'd rested a little bit actually and he says to them this is my father's house which is to be a house of prayer and you made it a den of robbers and I think he was still even angry righteously so not sinfully so and not only that, but he's hungry. Remember the fig tree? He wanted some figs. There were no figs there. But he says to them, My father's house, which is to be a house of prayer, you've made it a den of robbers. And he says, though, notice, not just was this a house of prayer, but my father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. He is in the temple outer court, the court of the Gentiles, where they were allowed to worship. They couldn't go into the inner court. And so a lot of people, especially the Jews, the Pharisees and the, um, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish court, this is one of their most profitable times of the year. They would set up in the Gentiles' place of worship and hinder their worship in order to sell and make a profit so the Jews could go in and worship. And it was huge. I read something from a historian that said during this time, even in this day, some two or 300,000 only lambs would be slain during this week. So you can imagine what kind of prophet was in this. It was a great prophet. And so the people who were supposed to be the people of God inside this area, which might have been up to like 30 acres large. We don't think about how large this place was. This Gentile area that was set up for them to worship, the nations to be able to worship the one true God, they took no concern for the Gentiles who were there to worship in their area that God had set aside for them to worship, and rather they were thinking about themselves and their prophet. Much like the rich young ruler in the chapter before, they couldn't get to God through their riches. The only thing they could see was their own desire. And so Jesus ran them out. But I love that he didn't only run them out, but he began to teach. He didn't just go in there and whip everybody and turn the tables over and say, get out. He started teaching why they had to get out. And there's this prophecy not only being fulfilled because there again, hey, it is written, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, but also prophecy foretold. And he, you read the, all the accounts together, he's, he begins here teaching as he did in John's account. Destroy this temple three days later, I'll build it back. And the people were 
Oh, how, who is he to say this? He, who's, how's he going to destroy the temple? And John says he was talking about himself. But also he's talking about their temple that's about to be destroyed as well. But prior to him getting into the temple, and really we call it the cleansing of the temple, but if you read all the accounts, you find out that he really, it was a curse pronounced on the temple too. It's about to be destroyed. It's a cleansing and a cursing. But prior to that, he was hungry, and he comes across a fig tree that had leaves and no figs. And Mark makes this interesting statement, for it was not the season for figs. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's kind of interesting because so much has been written about that little passage right there, especially from unbelievers. And I'll explain that in a minute. But what I found out, and you may already know this, and you may know better than me, but typically in this part of the country, in, part, in this part of the world, figs are a fall fruit, much like here, right? My fig tree is just now leafing, so I won't be able to enjoy figs till later. But apparently there are a lot of varieties of figs. And some fig trees not only would leaf in the spring, but some of them, for whatever reason, would actually bear fruit early, earlier than others. So weary travelers would see a tree, a fig tree with leaves, and they would go inspect it just in case it had fruit, because it might. It had the appearance of fruit, so we'd check it and see if it had fruit. And so many suggest this is what is happening. Now, Jesus sees this fig tree. He's hungry. It's not the season for figs. So many people would say that and say, well, what would he expect to have figs? Because it could have had them. It just wasn't the season for them. But it might have been the fig tree that would have figs. So he inspects it, but it's empty. And see, a lot of people will use this, and then he curses it makes this curse may no one ever eat fruit from you again and the tree withers and so a lot of for lack of a better way to put it a lot of tree hugging type uh, people would say well look at this what kind of God is this what kind of savior what did this fig tree do to him why would he curse it you know what an awful thing for somebody in fact Bertrand Russell who is known for his atheism wrote this is the very reason he would not believe in Christianity because he sees Jesus as a horrible savior who would do something to a poor fig tree who had done nothing to him and destroy this tree which is just insanity right I mean a lot of these people that today would say what an awful thing to do would think nothing of a baby being slain in a woman's womb but they would heartbreak over a fig tree being cursed and withered the likes of Bertrand Russell who was nothing more than a fool and I can say that with biblical authority because a fool has said in his heart there's no God what's amazing he would believe that Jesus could curse the tree and it wither a day later but he wouldn't believe in Jesus who made the tree to begin with it makes no sense but anyways he curses it and again, take all this into account. He's coming into Jerusalem for his arrest, certainly, but also to visit the temple. I think we missed this. I think this is part of why he came. Why was he coming to Jerusalem? He had to go to the temple. Because this is the representation of him. All the sacrifice was him. All this, the temple's purpose was to point to Christ. It was a place for people to come and worship God. It points to Jesus. And so part of his purpose was not just the cross, but to get to the temple. And to make these statements because he's a prophet. And prophets use allegory and imagery. 
He's coming, Mark says, by no accident, he's coming through Bethphage. You know what Bethphage means literally? The city of unripe figs. So he's traveling through the city of unripe figs to Jerusalem and finds a fig tree with no figs, but one that looks like it has figs. And we know that fruit, especially figs, were used in, uh, by other Old Testament prophets as a symbol or a picture for Israel. Hosea, for example. In Hosea, God compares Israel and his love for her like one who finds grapes in the wilderness and one who is like the first ripe figs, those figs that are so sweet and perfect for eating. God says, that's how I found Israel to be. But then also, because of Israel's sins... Hosea said God would make their trees and their vines barren. You think Christ is not using all this on purpose to draw their minds back to the prophets? Hey, the prophets said this would happen. You are God's chosen treasure. You are at one place the apple of his eye. You are like grapes in the wilderness where there's nothing to eat. You're like a fig that somebody comes upon when they're hungry and they find fruit. And this fruit is perfect for eating. But he says, because of your sin, I'll make your fig trees wither. I'll make your vines barren. And I believe that's what's going on here. Jesus is tying all that together because Israel has become altogether at this point unfruitful. She has a show of religion and righteousness just as the fig tree has leaves and suggests there's fruit, but yet she is empty. Just like Israel. She has a leafy show outwardly, but upon close inspection, emptiness. And Jesus has already told us, we know, since we read the New Testament, a branch that bears no fruit is worthy of what? Nothing but the fire. And Jesus said another place, these people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's what this barren fig tree represents. It's leafy, It says it has fruit, but it doesn't. And so the wrath of God against Israel is full. It's becoming full at this time. And that time is at hand for judgment. Jesus, the Messiah of God, Israel's Messiah, he's about to be taken by Israel and crucified because he refused to accept their leafy show of religious hypocrisy and he calls her out for it and they hate him. That's what he's doing in the temple. You're out here acting like you're all religious, helping these poor people. All you're doing is making a profit off of them. And not only that, but you're hindering them from worship. You think, I don't know, but God knows what you're doing. He knows that you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And as I already mentioned, in just a few short years, just as Jesus says, not a stone will be left upon this den of robbers known as the temple. It will be destroyed. And this temple will not only be destroyed, it will never rise again. Because the real temple, Jesus himself, did rise again and forever remain. And in him is real worship. And in him is all these pictures come to fruition. In him is fruit that will never fade. And in him all the nations will be blessed. That's the whole point of the temple, right? God would bless Abraham's seed and he would be a father to many nations and all nations would be blessed by him and what did Israel do all they did was turn all that in to a den of thieves but Israel served her purpose she brought the Messiah into the world 
And here he is. And so here's this lesson. Have faith in God. Not showy religiosity. Real faith in God. Not in things. Possibly this is for the disciples' benefit. Because it's the sovereign one who makes figs grow. And so it is with the fruit of the Spirit. Even the fruit that one produces as a Christian is God's fruit. Not our own. We talked about that Wednesday night. Talking about sanctification. Where does sanctification come from? It comes from God. And so Jesus is telling them about the things that are coming. And and warning them, don't necessarily... Look at things as how they appear. Because what you're seeing is not really what you think you're seeing. You don't have eyes to see what's really happening. Because he's about to be arrested and crucified. And he's warning them, your own faith is about to falter. The Son of Man will die. You'll think it's all been for naught. You'll think it's nothing left for you. All your hopes and dreams are dashed. But I want you to trust in the one who can cause mountains to be lifted up and cast into the sea. Right? Now, maybe Jesus is using a form of hyperbole here. We know that passage has been misused and abused and misquoted. He could be using hyperbole. He's a prophet. He's making pictures out of things so people can see with eyes of faith. Am I saying God couldn't take a mountain and cast it into the sea? No, he absolutely can. And if he needs to, he will. He did once with a flood. He cast them all into the sea. He could certainly do it again. I'm not saying as many do, trying to walk around and say, well, that's not what it really means. Hey, if that's what God wants to do, he can. But just like Paul uses the same kind of hyperbole in 1 Corinthians 13 and 2, where he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, if I have not charity, I'm nothing. Now there again, did the disciples hear Jesus say this and start thinking, well, you know, I've always wanted to cast a mountain into the sea. That would be great. I don't think for a minute. Why? I don't think that was the point. If anybody wants to get a mountain and throw it into the sea, now's the time. Pray and trust God for that. I think more what he's saying is that he's trying to get them to see all this is coming together and it's all been prophesied and it's all happening before them and they're about to need this tremendous faith. They're about to need this tremendous belief that God can do anything, even the impossible, casting out demons, healing the sick, even raising the dead. Certainly moving mountains, if you want to put it that way. He can do it all because he's the God of all creation. And as their heavenly father, he made the mountains. Certainly he can move them if need be. And what Jesus is saying, I want you to believe that. But hear me, believe God. I wish those in the prosperity gospel could see this. Quit trying to get people to believe God for things. Believe God for God. Sometimes we need to be taught that too. This is what Jesus is teaching them. Hey, if you have faith that this mountain would be tossed into the sea, it could be done. Why? Because this is the God who's able to do it. Can't think of one single reason why you need to literally pick up a mountain and throw it into the sea. But in a few days, you're going to need faith that everything I've been telling you is somehow going to start making sense because I'm about to die and three days later I'll rise again. And I love how the scriptures tell us at one point 
I think the disciples on the Emmaus Road, it tells us at the end of that, and all of a sudden, they remembered what he had said about dying and rising again. Believe that God can do and will do, especially believe that God will and does forgive sin. And so he says, so therefore forgive others. Don't be like the hypocrites. If your sin is forgiven, then forgive others. And again, the disciples were going to need this. You think they weren't going to be angry toward the people that crucified their Savior? You think they weren't going to be angry about these people who were selling them out? And they're even going to be angry at Jesus for leaving. Right? Peter, who's always strong in his faith and always willing to fight, he's going to sell him out in a minute to a little girl. I don't know who that is. I wasn't with him. So he says, no, believe God. Have faith in God that he can do everything that needs to be done. Even have faith that he has forgiven your sin and therefore forgive others. You remember the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant? Because Peter asked Jesus at that point, how many times should I forgive somebody when he asked me? And Jesus said to him, not seven times, but 77 times. 70 times seven times. And he makes this parable statement. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had and a payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and imploring him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. What a picture of God in Christ. We couldn't pay, but we want to pay. We can't. And so what does God do? He shows us grace and mercy and just forgives the dead in Christ. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, you better pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, much like he had done with his servant, I mean, with his master, please have patience with me and I'll pay you. But he refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported all to their master that had taken place. So that master summoned him back and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your servant? As I had mercy on you, and in anger his master delivered him up to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Jesus is making a very serious statement here. Don't call yourself my follower if you have no forgiveness for others. I have forgiven you, now forgive. So two things real quickly to take away. One, I've already said this, but to reiterate, Jesus has fulfilled all these and so many, many, many more prophecies because he is the Messiah of the world. He is the Messiah of God. He's the Savior of the world. Believe him. Believe in him. He promised to save us and to make us fruitful in his service. So we need to trust him for that. All of us have discovered our lives to be much like this fig tree, leafy but fruitless. 
So if that's where you are, don't just start doing things to try to produce fruit. Believe God. Trust in Christ. We talked about this Wednesday night. Listen to the promise of the new covenant from Ezekiel 36. Jesus says, I will sprinkle you clean with water. I'll sprinkle sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. From all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone in your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and look at this, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ephesians 2.10 says essentially the same thing. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you find yourself leafy and fruitless, don't try to find stuff to do. Find God in Christ and seek him and rest in him and trust him. He's promised he will give you good works to walk in. And he, will pro- he has promised to cause you to be careful to obey all of his statutes. If we're not careful, we'll trust in our stuff, in our works, and we won't be trusting in him. That's the Pharisees. That was the Jews at this time. They were trusting all they were doing. Look how spiritual we are. Well, you're so spiritual, you're hindering the nations from worshiping me, the ones I put you to be the light to. All the way back in Isaiah. I will make you a light unto the Gentiles. So believe him for that. He says here, ask him for it and believe that you have it. And you can have boldness for asking because he has already promised to give it. And again, I don't think that means stuff. I mean, I think it means faith. Because that's where we mess up. That's why we're leafy and no fruit. Our faith is lacking. And secondly, this idea of forgiveness. Life is too short to live with bitterness and anger toward others. And we've all done it. So Jesus says, you've been forgiven, so why don't you forgive? He's warning his followers about what's coming, right? And he's essentially saying, look at this picture. Here's a picture of Israel. A leafy tree with no fruit. A court set up for worship, and they've turned it into a den of robbers. The lesson, don't be like Israel. And Paul said this at one point. Hey, we have them to, as examples. All their sexual immorality, all their idolatry. Why should we fall in the same way? We see what happened to them. Don't be like them. Their false worship and their unforgiveness toward Gentiles caused them to hinder the Gentiles' worship of God. It is possible that our unforgiveness toward others will cause us, like them, to have no concern for their greatest need, which is forgiveness from God. And so as we come to the table of God's gracious, at God's gracious invitation here now, do not hinder others. I know you wouldn't. So as you thank God for the forgiveness extended to you to be able to sit at this table, ask Him for grace today to forgive others. Because he giveth more grace, he says. As I was thinking through this message, I was reminded of this great old hymn that I haven't sung in a long time, but it was just in, ringing in my head. And it's a, it's a hymn entitled simply, Have Faith in God. And this is the chorus. Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches o'er his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. 
Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the faith that you've given to us. We, thankful, we thank you for your faithfulness. That you cannot deny yourself. And even though we've been faithless, you have always been faithful. And God, we confess that there have been times where we have not had forgiveness. We recognize that. We've been much like Israel. We've been a leafy bush with no fruit. But God, help us not to be that. You've promised to not only save us by grace, which Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 begin saying, we've been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of works. But then you turn right around and say, but we were created in Christ Jesus under good works, that we should walk in them. Created beforehand. And that beautiful picture Ezekiel paints of the gospel which will come not only save us but sanctify us and cause us to walk in these things so god help us to have faith to walk in these give us faith in god more faith more faith that's what we all need so lord just turn our hearts and minds toward you more and more in these days and as we celebrate the supper together give us grace to move forward through this week and to be concerned about the forgiveness of sin for those around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.